Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. My dad works in B2B marketing. He came by my school for career day and said he was a big ROAS man. Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friends still laugh at me to this day. Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. You're listening to Yeah, That's Probably an Ad. This is the Adweek Podcast, where we talk about marketing, media, advertising, technology, pop culture, because in the end, everything's an ad. I'm David Greiner. I'm an editor with Adweek.com. With me as he is each week is Tim Nutt, our creative editor. Tim, how are you? Doing well. Thanks, David. Uh, thank you for holding down the fort uh, while I was away. I was out for, man, it's, it feels like it's been a while. We took uh, Thanksgiving off, and then uh, I was traveling, and uh, I was overseas, so I uh, enjoyed catching up on the podcast. Uh, this week, we've also got back Katie Richards, a staff writer covering the brand marketing world. Katie, welcome back. Thanks for having me back. And first-time guest, Lindsay Rittenhouse, a staff writer covering the agency world. Lindsay, how are you? I'm doing great. So excited to have you on the show. Welcome to your first episode. Thank you. All right. Well, we've got a lot to talk about today. It is our Agencies of the Year issue this week, uh, where we announce all of our, our many. We have like four categories now of Agency of the Year. We have Global Agency, U.S. Agency of the Year. We have our Breakthrough Agency of the Year. And we have a new category, International Agency of the Year. So we're going to tell you all about those in just a little bit. But first, the news. All right. Well, no real surprise to anybody to hear that we have had a lot of high-profile guys getting ousted after harassment allegations came to light. This has been going on for several months now, uh, but has really been focused within the media industry lately. Uh, You know, we've had it kind of of across so many industries ever since Harvey Weinstein, but uh, lately some of the biggest names have definitely been in broadcast. Uh, We had Matt Lauer ejected from NBC News after some pretty heinous stuff came to light about him. Charlie Rose, similarly from CBS, one of the most iconic kind of broadcast figures out. Uh, Analyst Mark Halperin out from NBC News and Garrison Keillor out from Minnesota Public Radio, of course, the creator of Prairie Home Companion. Uh, All of these ousted pretty quickly uh, after news came to light of the allegations against them. And that is what our, uh, our media editor, Chris Ahrens, wanted to look into is basically these kind of rapid ejections, uh, you know, that when you had uh, some of the earlier accusations against uh, Fox News, uh, you know, personalities, you had Roger Ailes at the executive level, you had Bill O'Reilly, there was this kind of slow buildup of, you know, what was the network going to do? Were they going to keep them? Were they going to kick them out? And of course, both of those men ended up leaving. Uh, but uh, lately, <laughs> the, the, the the pattern's gotten much faster. And so these folks are out pretty quick after uh, these credible uh, allegations come to light. And so uh, our, our, as I said, our media editor wanted to look into whether this approach is working for networks, whether it's the, the smartest thing to do to cut these guys pretty quickly. And yes, seems to be the consistent answer uh, that media agencies are saying that that it's about all you can do is show that you are taking it seriously by not just like traditionally they would have said, we are taking these allegations very seriously. And then they would have waited for like six months and not done anything. Um, and now it's being much faster. The, you know, the issue that also came up with this is that these these networks are losing viewership, especially the morning shows uh, with folks like Matt Lauer. They're losing viewership by the hundreds of thousands each year. They're in a steady decline. They don't need another reason for people to stop watching them as they shift away to digital. Uh, we interviewed Barry Lowenthal, the president of the media agency Media Kitchen, who said, you know, there's already this seismic shift underway with Gen X and Gen Y moving away from broadcast TV and that these controversies certainly don't help. I guess my question for the panel today is, do you guys feel like this is the end of this kind of multi-million dollar celebrity newscaster morning show era? Is any equivalent of that going to make it over into the digital world or is this just the end of an era? I guess I feel like it's not the end of these kind of multi-millionaires who are doing these morning shows. Um, I think maybe it's a case to hire more women and <laughs> get more women doing this because, you know, you, you don't see this happening. Um, I mean, not 
that's not necessarily true, but you don't see it happening as much as you do with men. Um, so I think in a way, it's a great excuse to get more women into these positions and women who, you know, want these positions. Um, but it's also interesting, like, you know, people in my generation, I feel like, as you mentioned, aren't necessarily watching the morning news as much. Like, companies like BuzzFeed, you can, you know, say, hey, Alexa, like, what's going on on BuzzFeed this morning? And BuzzFeed has this program where it tells you, like, here's all the highlights, here's what's going on, here's what you need to know. So, I mean, I think it's kind of a yes and no. Like, you might see less of these morning news anchors, um, but I don't think it's absolutely going away forever. Yeah, and I should clarify, it's certainly not like I think, you know, oh, without these guys, is this industry going to collapse? It's just more like this idea of personality-based news just seems so tethered to TV yeah. that, you know, even if they replace them with awesome women, you know, with awesome people, uh, it just feels like there is not a real digital equivalent of this. Uh, I don't know. Lindsay, what do you think? Um, yeah, I mean, I would have to say I pretty much agree with Katie, but um, just like everything, we need to evolve, um, get more personality on there that maybe a younger generation can relate to, uh, maybe, you know, push it to digital a little more. Um, yeah, I don't think it's going to go away. I think we just need to learn how to evolve. And I'm glad everything's coming out. But maybe these personalities who have been on air for decades just, you know, need to get out and make way for a new generation. There's probably an opportunity here to really become one of the first, you know, digital news celebrities. We obviously we have tons of video influencers. I mean, that's not there's no lack of those, uh, although that's a field with its own kind of problems. Um, But it's you know, there's not really, uh, I, I would say, I guess the equivalent would be podcasters, right? Mm-hmm. Like news podcasters uh, who are often kind of like, I guess like TV analysts, they're often coming out of politics. So all these folks who maybe left the Obama administration, you know, they're the ones leading a lot of these podcasts that are very opinion news oriented. I don't know. Is that a fair comparison? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think that's something I thought about, too. It's more people listening to podcasts and they're they're just not taking the time to watch these big cable programs anymore isn't everything kind of personality driven though like podcasts are personality driven in many ways whether it's like ira glass or you know whoever like the the person reading you the news or, or telling you the story is is a, such a huge part of it um i don't know if it's as true of like evening news which i mean all that stuff shrinking but morning news certainly i've never been a huge fan of morning news but it seems to me people wake up to like hang out with their friends if they're watching a morning news show Typically. Yeah, it feels like everyone has their favorite. Like you're not watching every single network. You have one, you pick one, you identify with the person and it's based on like, to your point, their personality, their character, um, how they tell stories. So I think that definitely is a big part of it. Yeah, and like in the evening, it's like Hannity or or Anderson Cooper or whoever. I mean, you know, all this. That's why these dudes are paid so much, and women and the women too. Like they, what was Lauer making like twenty five million dollars a year? Yeah, yeah. it's just a, you know, it's about it's a it's because people liked the him as a person, I suppose, or at least you know, tuned in to watch him. Yeah, I feel like the era that, that we're watching end here, and it's not being driven by the, these harassment allegations. It's This is just kind of accelerating it because of people's, you know, basically shrugging off broadcast news or the potential for them to do so. And that that's why I bring it up, you know, is, is that this is just accelerating a cycle that we were already seeing. I, I think what we're going to lose is the idea of the objective news personality, uh, because, you know, there's a, there's so many emerging personalities in podcasting, but they have a position. They have an axe to grind, right? Like they're they're mm-hmm. partisan out of the gate. Um, and, and I just don't think you're going to see like a Tom Brokaw of podcasting, you, you know, just like these kind of very neutral uh, voices mm-hmm. just because it's sad. I just think that that's, that's something there's not an appetite for anymore. And, and when you think about like the personality I turn to for my news, it's my phone. You know, I, <laughs> right, just, I look at my right. phone and I look at the headlines and it's like, oh, that's from Washington Post. That's from New York Times. Like, that's all I really think about. I don't even look at bylines anymore. And I used to be the kind of person who obsessed over bylines. And now I just I just look at the source, which I think is important, but I don't think of the people behind it anymore. I just think of that is a story from the Washington Post, you know. All right. Well, speaking of guys and controversy, uh, which (laughs) seems to be like all over the recurring theme of 2017 and probably well into 2018, uh, one of the current controversies flaring up is with CES, the giant technology show that's coming up very soon in January. Uh, And several people have pointed out that the lineup of keynote speakers for 2018 are all dudes. 
all guys. And these are, of course, the top keynote presenters. There's not too many. I think there's something like eight uh, keynote presenters in total, all guys. And this seems to come at a just spectacularly bad time to do this when you've had so many discussions, setting aside the harassment, uh, you know, allegations and, and stories and all the ousters that, that we've seen over this uh, past few months. I, even before that, we had so much debate about the role of gender balance in Silicon Valley and the imbalance there. And of course, you had the the Google staffer who wrote the memo about why he didn't think women were were cut out for you know technology and coding work, which sparked this huge backlash. Just seems like a real bad time to be doing this. I, I guess my you know I don't think any of you are going to disagree with that, uh, but I am curious how you think events should avoid this. It seems kind of obvious, but do you feel that they should have? whether it's in writing or just a, an unspoken rule that they have to have some gender balance or at least some diversity on their speaker lineups. Katie, what, what do you think about yeah, that? Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of surprised they don't already have that. Like, I feel like we're at a point in time now where it's just kind of understood that diversity is important when you're hosting these massive events. So I'm kind of surprised that they just like didn't even have that to begin with. I don't know what the answer is. Like, Is it like, did they not notice or did they not care? Yeah, that's the thing. Like, are there no women on the CES board to begin with to be like, hey, there's no ladies in here or like there's no people of color? Um, or there are, but it's like one person. Uh, so I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. Yeah, it's it's just sad. I mean, either they're, they aren't in the room or they don't feel, you know, empowered to say something. I mean, that's something that would immediately come up, especially with all the headlines today. It's just like, do you, do you really want this negative, um, I guess, headline out there? I mean, come on. I don't know. It just seems so obvious that people are going to be upset over this. And, you know, you're talking to a whole group of people that you're just, you're not going to get the same diversity that you need to speak to this massive amount of people. I don't know. <laughs> Now, several people have been taking to Twitter uh, to kind of call out CES and to, uh, you know, mildly shame them or in some cases extremely shame them. But one person who's trying to strike a balance there is Twitter's CMO, Leslie Berlin, who, you know, she kind of posted this polite call on Twitter just saying, hey, you know, CES, big fan of what you've done, but uh, I know a lot of women <laughs> Who could have been keynote speakers? So maybe we can connect. I mean, she's obviously trying to find a like. I'm not going to bash on CES, but at the same time, uh, when you have someone at her level pointing out this inequity, uh, you know, I'm honestly surprised that they haven't done something already. That they didn't elevate another speaker. That they didn't do something to mitigate this before it really blew up because it has taken on quite a bit. I'm curious for you guys, you know, mostly when we go to conferences, it's to cover them. You know, we, we're, we're rarely going. But if you were going because this was the industry that you are in, uh, you know, Katie, Lindsay, do, do you what would that do for your impression of the conference if you saw, oh, it's all guys, it's all white guys? You, you know, what would <laughs> I guess I what would that go. say to you? I, I just wouldn't go. I would be so annoyed. You know, I can't relate to anyone who's speaking to me. I'm just going to sit this one out. Yeah, that's a tough call. Like, I don't know if I would have the will to be like, I'm not going to go, but I would definitely, you know, write to the people on the board of CES and be like, you guys need to change this. And it just, I I don't know. It's It's one of those things where like sitting out sometimes I feel like doesn't always make as big a statement as going and raising fuss like when you're actually there. Um, but I, yeah, I don't know. I would commend Lindsay for not going. And that's kind of a good argument, too, because I think a lot of times as, like, women, we're afraid to say no and not go because we're afraid that we're not going to get asked back. And I think that's something that's that's always there. And so it's a hard decision, you know? I don't think you should have rules, though, based, like, requirements of diversity because that kind of defeats the purpose, you know? Like, if you're required to have balance, then... You're not voluntarily choosing balance, which is the ideal anyway. And then right. if you do something like CES has done, you're going to get so much backlash that, that it's going to teach you a lesson. And then everyone else gets to see this sort of, you know, disaster unfolding. And that'll reinforce, you know, the, all, you know it reinforces the reason why you want diversity in the first place. So I, I think, I don't think, you know, putting rules on it is the, is the answer. Yeah, I mean, I guess to your point, you know, you either have the kind of culture that values uh, gender balance and diversity on your speaker panels or you don't. And if if you don't, you're not going to create a rule like that. And if you do, you already care about it. 
you know, mm-hmm. so it's it's something you're already thinking about. I can't remember if I've discussed this on the podcast. Like, I have personal rules. I used to do a lot, a lot of public speaking, not not so much anymore. Uh, but you know, I have a personal rule that I won't speak on any all male panel. I won't moderate an all male panel, and that's kind of it. It grew out of this frustration of like, what can we do? Do we just not go? Do we just say no? And I decided that that was kind of a a nice halfway point of saying, well, no, I won't, and here's why, but also proposing to help them. So so when this has come up, I've said, no, I, I mean, I, I won't do that because of this rule, but let me help you find, if you have room, let me help you find a woman to be on the panel, or let me help you find a woman to replace me as moderator. There are plenty better out there. So I feel like it's one where, honestly, if more people just had their own personal rules I think it might help avoid this, but in the end, like I could agree to be a speaker at a conference like this and have no idea what the lineup is going to look like, you know, if it's not a panel. And so in in the end, there's only, only so much individual speakers can do to help regulate this kind of thing. Well, it'll be it'll be interesting. I, I have a feeling that this one, if it picks up enough steam, will really have an, an impact far beyond CES, and we'll we'll definitely see it. Uh, you know, have an impact across 2018 across all these tech conferences. I, I'm just it's baffling, baffling that CES didn't really think about this. But anyway, one other news item we wanted to hit uh, is pretty hot breaking news. Uh, CVS is buying Aetna, uh, the insurance company. So CVS, the uh, you know the drugstore giant, is buying Aetna, the health insurance company, for 69 billion dollars. Uh, and this story is just coming out. We've got uh, quite a few. St- if you check adweek.com by the time this comes out, you'll f- probably find some good coverage of what this really means and uh, kind of what it means for these industries. But I'm curious for you guys what you thought about this when you heard it. To me, on the one hand, this really is an interesting extension of the future of retail at a time when like there's so many questions about retail and about brick and mortar and, and what it, what it's really going to do. But at the same time, as just as a consumer, the idea of my drugstore owning uh, an insurance company, whether it's mine or not, makes me just, I don't know, uneasy. I, I guess. How, how do you guys feel about this one? Completely. I mean, you know, you, you could argue that the, it'll introduce maybe some efficiencies that consumers might enjoy, but... But yeah, I mean, consolidation within pharmacy and and healthcare um, just seems like it can threaten, um, you know, the individuality here of the companies and and, and, and more monopolies in healthcare is not really what we need. Yeah, good point. Uh, Katie, Lindsay, what do you guys think of that when you heard the news? Uh, Yeah, I mean, I would agree with everything you just said. I was a little shocked. I thought it was a joke at first. And then I was like, oh, this is real. There's such a lack of transparency on on health insurance, you know, even even when they they say they're showing you all this stuff. It's a bit of a crapshoot, right? Every time you go to a doctor, but but even to your pharmacy, I'm just like, let's find out how much they charge me this time. (laughs) And you don't know, like, what am I being penalized for? Did I not ask for the right thing? Am I grabbing the wrong brand? And so this kind of thing just creates yet another uh, question in your mind when you're there as a customer, like, uh, okay, well, I'm on Blue Cross, so am I going to be penalized or am I going to pay more? Um, it's shall be interesting to see what what I make of the you know what what comes of this uh, and whether there's any kind of regulatory questioning about it in in under this administration probably not as much as under some other ones but uh, yeah we'll be curious to see what happens all right well that is enough news and we've got a lot more to discuss with our agency of the year in a minute but first Tim's going to recap all of the best ads of the week and we like to call it ads worth watching. Tim, what have you got for us this week? Well, I wanted to talk this week about Spotify's new uh, end-of-the-year holiday campaign. Uh, it was made in-house, and it's kind of a sequel to what Spotify did last year. I don't know if you guys remember, but um, what they did last year, they kind of crunched a bunch of listener data, and uh, they put it into uh, into in sort of witty uh, headlines on billboards. So, for example, um, one of the billboards last year said something like... Um, to the person who streamed uh, Justin Bieber's "Sorry" 42 times on Valentine's Day, what did you do? So they're you know they're taking these like funny listener data points and turning them into sort of amusing uh, billboard out of home headlines. And so what they've done this year to kind of um, you know uh, tweak it a little bit is to they've turned it into almost like New Year's resolution ads. So the, the ads are themed uh, 2018 goals. And it's very similar, though, to last year. So they, they go into their enormous amount of, of user data, and they, they hunt down some interesting data points and put them into uh, amusing headlines. And so there are several political ones this year. 
Uh, of course, we've had such a, a heavy political year in general. It's been the last couple have been this way, of course. And so some of the headlines are quite funny. Um, so one of them says, 2018 goals uh, deliver burns as well as the person who streamed Bad Liar 86 times the day Sean Spicer resigned. And another another headline says, um, 2018 goals be as savage as the person who made a one-hour, 55-minute playlist called Lasting Longer Than the Mooch. So those were obviously headlines um, kind of poking a little fun at uh, Trump's uh, lieutenants who, who did not have the greatest year uh, in the world. And so I thought these were really clever. They're, they're, it's a global campaign, so they've been tailored um, to all sorts of markets around the world. I think the major markets, you know, the, the U.S., the U.K., a bunch of other uh, European markets, too, they, they specifically, you know, crafted those ads uh, for those markets. But they also created almost like a toolkit um, so that some of the smaller markets around the world, I mean, Spotify is everywhere. So some of the smaller markets around the world, the marketing teams there can kind of take this toolkit of, uh, you know, um, the artwork and everything else, and then just plug in their own headlines. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Um, and I spoke to Seth Farbman last week. He's the CMO over at Spotify. Uh, really interesting guy. He used to be the CMO at Gap, which that's kind of a crazy jump from Gap to, to Spotify. But um, he's running the marketing team at Spotify. And he was telling me a little bit about how they made these ads. You know, they uh, last year, it was kind of an inefficient process. They, you know, they hired these these data analysts whose sole job is to kind of create these marketing campaigns uh, by looking into the, you know trends in the data. And he said last year he just you know they were just told go in and find stuff, <laughs> and then that was really difficult you know because like it's like finding a needle in a haystack. So this year they went in with kind of ideas about what they wanted to talk about. Um, and so, like politics is is the good example. Um, you know, the, on, on the day Sean Spicer resigned, they sort of thought to themselves, "Well, I wonder what people are listening to." You know, in relation to this, so they actually have an idea of what people might be listening to based on current events, and then they go and try and find that data, which is a lot more efficient than just sort of looking for a thesis within this pile of data. Yeah, I mean, the other thing, the other point that Seth made is that you know these billboards you know work really well because um, you know what music we listen to kind of on a macro level, um, you know, says a lot about who we are and how we're feeling at a, at a certain moment. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. You know, music is kind of a, a very subconscious experience. And if you do look at macro data around uh, music, you know, listening habits, you will find these interesting commentaries on, on, you know, on pop culture and what's happening in our society. So I love this campaign. You can check it out. Um, we post all the ads and we have a, a long Q&A with, uh, with Seth about um, how, how they work. Um, did you guys happen to see these? What did you guys think? Yeah, about? I'm a big fan of this whole campaign. Um, I think there's actually one of them that I fall into. I'm not going to say which one, but there's a song that I have played many times um, on here. So we'll just leave it at that. Anyway, um, but yeah, I think what I really love about this is it one, it makes you think about your own listening habits. I think like, you know, how do I, how do I listen to music? How do I consume music? Um, What playlists am I listening to? what playlists are other people listening to? I think it just, it really makes you think. And um, I just think it really hits on some really fun, interesting insights about culture and how people consume things. So I'm a big fan. It's kind of interesting you say that about um, your own listening habits, because apparently I'm a Spotify user, I'm a subscriber, and I haven't gotten this yet, but apparently they're creating uh, end-of-year dashboards for every user yeah. that will actually tell you like what song you listen to the most, or and it'll give you some other um, data trends. And the other interesting thing is they do special ones for all their artists also, so um, you know, they'll send something to Taylor Swift telling her exactly like, uh, on what days, which songs were popular and all that stuff. And I think that's kind of interesting too, because this whole campaign is kind of a partnership with artists, you know, of course, because so many artists appear in the campaign. They also have these funny cutouts, um, life-size cutouts of, of artists that they're putting around uh, a couple of different cities that have kind of, um, holes cut out for your head. So you can put your head in and you, st- you stand next to the to the artists and stuff, which is kind of a, a takeoff on, you know, remember the Delta dating wall in Brooklyn? That's kind of like a similar idea where you'd take a photo of this installation and make it look like a social post. Um, so I thought that was pretty interesting too. Yeah. You know, this really highlights to me that the the amount of effort that, and thought that goes into naming a playlist now, am I alone in that? Do you guys like really struggle with this? <laughs> yeah. I take yeah, a lot of yeah, time. <laughs> yeah. And what I keep doing is I set about a new playlist with like certain intentions 
And then they they don't follow through, but I don't change the name of the playlist. <laughs> it becomes like an artifact of of where I started. And so I have ones called like high intensity that are that are like half really slow <laughs> songs because by the end I'm like I don't really want a whole playlist of it, you know. And uh, I my newest one is a real hot banger called New Playlist that I just never got around <laughs> nice. to naming. All right, yeah. But I nice. I eventually came to love it. But no, it's like yeah, think about this. I'm like, man, what would it say about me if someone went in? Uh, you know, and looked at my naming conventions, which of course, like my wife does, and every once in a while, someone will look at it and be like, "Why did you call it?" I'm just, I don't, I don't want to talk about. It. It's very personal. <laughs> <laughs> well, you also don't see a lot of ads that that use data in creative ways. You know, imagine if like Twitter and and Facebook did similar ads where they actually told you some of the interesting things that the users do, like on mass. So that's what I like about this campaign. It kind of makes a really creative use of data. I've got a counterpoint on that, though, which is that if most did that, they'd be talking about data about you, and which which this one kind of is. But the music you listen to feels so much less personal and 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 the way that they've anonymized it. You know what I mean? Like, you, mm-hmm. you don't walk away being like, man, Spotify really tracks my every move. Like, of course mm-hmm. Spotify knows what my playlists are and, and what songs I listen to. Whereas if it was like Facebook being like, how many number of people went from their house to the store at, before 6 a.m., you'd be like, dude, stop, Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> right. I suppose that's, the, you know, the, the reason uh, you know, a, music, a, stream, a music streaming service can get away with this and, and people seem to really enjoy looking at these. We should also plug our, uh, Adweek's Spotify playlist. Um, what is it called? Ad songs, not bad songs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, ad songs, but not bad songs. That's a that's a hot playlist. Uh, our Slack. We had a Slack conversation among the whole staff that went kind of nuts a few months ago about what ad, what advertising, what songs that appear in commercials should be on this playlist. So I think we made the playlist. It's like over a hundred songs. I think. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's yeah, a great it's, playlist. It's, a lot. it's really really good. Yeah, and then so we only ended up having to delete like a handful that just kind of were more obnoxious than they merited. But man, there's some there's some real good good songs on there that like I kind of forgot because they, you burn out on them and then uh, right and and then a few years later you're ready for it again. Um, but, I think uh, the top ten on that is like really sort of ads songs that are really known because they are in ads. You know, like Pink Moon by Nick Drake, stuff like that. Yeah. Those are my favorites, which are not just ones that have been in ads, but ones that, that really are known for, for the commercial. I, really I, cool. I realized I was finally ready to listen to Black Sheep again after the the dancing hamsters, like the Kia hamsters had burned me out on that song for a good <laughs> nice. while. I was like, I was nice. ready for it again. But. Well, the other ad I wanted to mention this week, um, also a holiday campaign. It's from the German supermarket chain um, called uh, uh, Etika, I believe it's pronounced, or Etika. Um, and they did this ad, you guys might remember this, I think it was two years ago, they did a very controversial ad, uh, got tons of play around the world. Uh, it was about a, an, an elderly man who is super lonely all year long. It, sh- it shows him kind of, um, you know, being by himself. Uh, nobody comes to visit him, even on the holidays. So what he does is um, he fakes his own death. He, he sends a notice to all his family members that, that on behalf of someone else saying that he has passed away. And that they all need to come for the for the funeral and all this, and then they show up, and he's not dead. He just wanted them around for for the holidays. So <laughs> hey, whatever, whatever works. So <laughs> it was such a weird commercial, but um, anyway, so that'll give you an idea of what um, Edica is all about. Uh, they have an agency called Young von Matt, which is really one of the more creative agencies in Germany. Um, they do sort of crazy work in general, and they did a really interesting spot. It's like a almost like a short film. I think it's almost four minutes long for this year's holiday ad. And it's awesome. It takes place in the year 2117. And it's also got a very dark premise, which is that um, robots have taken over the world. And, uh, you know, all the big cities are kind of overgrown. And and it's this sort of walking dead vibe. And uh, this group of, you see this group of of robots kind of uh, marching down the street. And the one in the back kind of looks over uh, at a movie theater marquee and sees like an old Christmas movie, you know, that, that the humans had been watching when they were uh, overrun. And, you know, it's almost like um, uh, Force Awakens, you know, with the with the rogue rogue stormtrooper where this this robot or like Wally, I guess, the Pixar movie where the, this robot um, kind of wanders off and gets intrigued by like who were these people that we destroyed and he ends up kind of learning about Christmas by watching this Christmas movie in the movie theater and then he um, finds some mannequins to actually have a Christmas dinner with and then he eventually he's like this isn't really cutting it so he wanders out of town and goes into the countryside and actually finds um, 
the few remaining humans that seem to be alive somewhere out in the wilderness. And, you know, they sort of welcome him in. And instead of completely destroying him on the spot, they welcome him in and, uh, and they have a little, a little uh, Christmas dinner. And it's, it's, again, it's like completely insane ad, but, um, but also really kind of fun. And like, um, I don't know. It's like, did you guys watch this? I, I, I found it like, both terrifying and also heartwarming at the same time. Yeah, I thought it was. I thought it was cute, especially around the holiday season. Uh, remind us to stay human, and that you know, gadgets and robots are fun, but we all need you know human interaction during the holidays. So I thought it was nice. Yeah, mm. kind of a follow up, almost like a follow up to uh, everyone you love is gone. The Halo, the Halo Top <laughs> robot commercial from a few Every, months ago. Everyone you, everyone you love is in hiding. Right. <laughs> <laughs> totally. I don't know. Katie, did you watch this one? Yeah, I liked this one a lot, too. I got more of the Wally vibe, less the Star Wars vibe, because I'm a mm-hmm. Pixar fan. Um, yeah. But yeah, it was really sweet. There's a really touching moment at the end when they're all sitting around the table, and this little girl goes up to the robot, and they have a, a nice little moment. And um, I was I was a little confused at first, like where it was going, and it's a little bit longer, so it's kind of like, all right, where's the punchline here? But um, mm-hmm. it was it was definitely worth watching all the way through, for sure. It's really well made. Yeah. I mean, like visually, particularly the opening scenes are pretty incredible. Is, is it bad that I was like looking at the, you know, their lifestyle of being out in the middle of nowhere and just being like, that sounds nice. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. I could, I could kind of go for a post-apocalyptic, absolutely no technology. You yeah, know. I had the same feeling. <laughs> the uh, I will say just uh, while we're on the topic quickly, if you have not seen the movie Chappie, have you guys seen that? No. It's interesting. It's by the guy who made District 19. I forget his name. But um, it's about a like this near future where the robots of like the police of Johannesburg have been replaced by these robots, not like RoboCop, but like just these kind of human shaped robots who aren't corrupt. And, you know, they can just go into these situations without cops being killed. And then crime gets reduced. But then one of them, like the scientist uploads an actual AI into him. uh, And so he kind of comes online as a an actual human, but he's got the brain of a baby, basically. So he has to he has to like learn about the world and learn. And he he kind of is like a child at the beginning, and he's a lot like this robot, like a lot of the similar behaviors. It I, I will give a recommendation that is a very interesting and very thought provoking movie. Uh, it is heavy at times. It's definitely one of those like innocence uh, shall be punished, you know, kind of movies where like mm-hmm. it's just it's so heartwarming, and then every time you start to like feel for him, just all these horrible things happen. But it's generally an upbeat movie. It's not going to depress the hell out. Yeah. But if well, you like it, sad, you know. You know, also um, the Spanish lottery holiday ad this year was about an, an alien who comes to Earth and likewise doesn't really understand how to communicate or get along with anybody. So there's definitely like this, you know, um, trend this year of holiday ads with like, you know, outsiders trying to understand humans. So that's kind of an interesting, um, almost like body snatchers type vibe. Well, we are like incredibly awful <laughs> just as a species true true <laughs> all right well thank you tim for rounding up the ads worth watching it's time to move on to our big discussion of the week which i'm super excited about this week it is our agencies of the year all right so as i mentioned at the top of the show we've got four categories in which we award agency of the year we've been doing this for about 30 years um and we've you know the categories have changed a little bit over the years so we first had a an agency of the year which is now the u.s agency of the year uh, we also have a global agency of the year in which we recognize the global networks and then we have breakthrough agency of the year which is kind of the up and coming the one that really broke through uh and had some stellar creative and growth and then we have our new category the international agency of the Tim, do you want to talk real briefly about why we created that category? Well, I think we noticed that there were overseas offices of agencies that were having, you know, really special years here and there. Um, I'm thinking of, of an agency like Adam and Eve, DDB, a couple of years ago. Um, and so we really wanted to recognize those agencies because there wasn't really a place to do that. Uh, you know, global agency is really has to be a global network, and you're talking about the whole network. Obviously, U.S. is confined to the U.S., um, breakthrough, which we introduced, I think, two years ago, this is our third year, uh, is really more about an agency that reached a new level. And so uh, international is really about an overseas office, a single office. It could be an independent agency. It could be an office of a major network uh, that really just had a really interesting year. And so we thought that that would, uh, you know, adding that fourth category really kind of rounds out a nice portrait of, of four different shops doing great work. Well, let's start with U.S. The U.S. Agency of the Year is always one of the more fascinating to debate. This is one that's close to home for Adweek. And this year it is McCann. 
Uh, interestingly, I don't know. I'd have to pull up our full list. I don't think McCann's ever won U.S. agency. They've been our global agency of the year several times. They obviously have a tremendous global network. And this year, they were a very strong contender for global. Uh, I honestly thought some of their best creative work uh, was done from their global offices. Uh, but, uh, you know, when you think of advertising in 2017, you think of Fearless Girl. I mean, is that an overstatement, Katie? No, I think that's right. I mean, they won so many awards at Cannes. Um, it, you know, it was a piece of advertising that a lot of people didn't realize was advertising, and it was taken to be this huge cultural icon for a lot of young women and girls and just people everywhere. So I think that's a fair statement to make. Yeah, and that's they certainly did not win solely off Fearless Girl. I, I think um, that's kind of – some people may see it as a shorthand of that. McCann had a very strong year. They led the industry in new business growth, I, I believe, both domestically and globally. Uh, didn't necessarily win any mega accounts that everyone else would be jealous of, uh, but quite a huge amount of growth, especially – I mean, McCann – Tim, like, let's talk a little bit about McCann's background because, I mean, this is one of the golden age uh, agencies, right? Yeah, I mean, this is an IPG shop. It's got a t- tremendous history. Uh, it, you know, it made it made the Coca Cola Hilltop Spot. You know, in 1971, that's often considered one of the two or three best commercials ever made. Uh, absolute behemoth. And you know, the thing about giant agencies is they tend to get less and less creative as they get bigger and bigger. It's true of almost every agency through the years. Um, but you know, um, McCann's really had uh, a creative comeback in the last couple of years. You know, you'll remember that uh, field trip to Mars for Lockheed Martin uh, in, you know, was probably, I think it was the most awarded piece of, of marketing um, in, in 2016. And then they followed that up with this tremendous year um, this year, starting with Fearless Girl. They also had, they did wonderful work for Cigna and Nespresso, um, Godiva, a bunch of other uh, brands that they handle in the U.S. And so it's really a story of, you know, an agency of, of an, an enormous size and a great legacy, um, really kind of finding its purpose again. Um, you know, and we, uh, Patrick uh, Coffey wrote the story for us. And, you know, it was really like Rob Riley came in from Crispin a couple of years back to kind of, you know, be the, the, the leader creatively of this agency. And he kind of brought that sort of smaller agency mindset, I think, to the creative work. And it's really paid off. And, and you know, a guy um, like John Meskel, who, you know, created the Dumb Ways to Die um, spot uh, from McCann Melbourne a bunch of years back, he was, he was brought into a major... Uh, you know, U.S. role, and he's he's had an effect. And so I think they've got the people there now, and they've got the mindset where they really are, are acting like a much smaller agency while also commanding, uh, you know, enormous economies through these big clients that they handle. Lindsay, this was your first year being a part of our Agency of the Year deliberations. Um, and I, I feel like I can be pretty transparent here that the, this was a very close uh, decision. Uh, last year's U.S. Agency of the Year, Droga 5, certainly still had a wonderful year creatively, uh, really did some top-notch work. I think, uh, you know, as someone uh, who I personally favored uh, selecting McCann for this, I felt they were the more iconic uh, agency, even, even even if they didn't kind of rise to the level of creative excellence that Droga 5 has. Uh, but what were, what were some of your thoughts on that ra- horse race between those two and, and the strengths that each brought Yeah, to you it? know, it was interesting. Um, I think I was... Um just a little thrown because of the the controversy that came with Fearless Girl um, for the parent organization, State Street Corp. And that definitely uh, was was taken into consideration when we were, you know, deliberating this. Um, but the, the fact remains that, you know, the message is still there. Um, what a parent company does doesn't necessarily mean the subsidiary has anything, you know, even new about it. Um, but yeah, I mean, nothing really topped Fearless Girl. Um, I think other work, though, too, came into play. Einstein, uh, that spot after uh, Lady Gaga's Super Bowl performance, uh, that was that was really good. Um, there was just, you know, I, I just don't think Droga, Droga definitely, you know, that their New York Times was, a piece was like, was really good. And that um, I almost favored them because of it. But in the end, I mean, McCann just came out really, really strong. Tim, you've been here the longest of any of us at Adweek. What do you look for in an agency of the year? Well, traditionally, we've looked at three things, which is their financial performance, um, their creative work, and their management moves or strategic moves. And, you know, I think I think with McCann, you can point to, uh, you know, solid results in all three of those. You could say the same about Droga 5, I think. Uh, it was a difficult decision, I think, kind of figuring out who we should honor for this. I think... Um, 
you know, it said something to me that when I spoke to people in the industry, um, you know, there was a lot of feeling that we were going to pick McCann. I think there's a reason for that. I think they they are probably the much more talked about agency this year than Droga 5. Maybe that's unfair to Droga 5 because maybe people come to expect it from Droga 5. Uh, creative excellence and, you know, they, they also had tremendous growth in, in revenue. And, you know, but, but for my money, I, I, I was leaning toward McCann as well just because um, I think it's harder to be... To, to have these kind of results if you're bigger and it, and it you know, particularly strategically and the kind of moves they've made over the years, over the last, you know, not just a year or 18 months, but three or four years, you know, they've been building something there that I think is hard for a large agency to build. And, you know, they're the envy of, of other major networks at the moment. Um, and so I, I do think that they deserved it. I, I think, I think you're right, David, to say that um, perhaps across the board, they don't rise exactly to the level uh, of a Droga 5 in terms of their their creative output on the whole, but they did have the most talked about ad of the year. They also had a ton of other interesting work, and, and their new business streak was really quite unbelievable to see. They, they won almost everything that they went after, and they are the buzzed about agency right now, and it's amazing that they're, you know, they've been around for so many years, and you know, to see a resurgence like this, I felt like we really had to honor them for that. And uh, just to reiterate for those who, if you haven't been following this podcast, following the news, the controversy around Fearless Girl that, that Lindsay mentioned uh, is that the parent company uh, was made to pay $5 million in back pay and compensation uh, to women and some minority employees that it did not pay equally. Uh, this was due to a federal audit, uh, and there was a lot of debate about this, she mentions and a lot of questions about how much did the subsidiary that was the client on Fearless Girl, how much did they know about this? Did the agency know about it? The agency insists they did not. Uh, and, you know, it's one of those, where I, again, as someone who used to work in an agency, I can tell you, like, we don't we don't get a lot of that kind of insider information when you're on the creative team or, or so it's, you know, I, I tend to believe them that they weren't aware of some of that. But in the end, I think it just kind of helped further more conversation about gender equity and pay and a lot of what Fearless Girl was created. So it is problematic. I'll just quickly read uh, an excellent uh, paragraph from the beginning of, of Patrick's uh, feature on McCann where he says, contradictions define Fearless Girl. She is a paid promotion demanding corporate responsibility. She is a child highlighting injustices of adult she is an analog work in an increasingly digital world. And her creator, McCann, had a year that can be seen as a similar study in contrast, one of the world's oldest ad agencies proving its relevance once again. And I think that's a really fantastic summary of why we chose them. Uh, let's move on to Global. Our Global Agency of the Year is Widening Kennedy, another kind of storied name, not quite as old as McCann, uh, but certainly one of the most uh, respected uh, names in the in the industry. But Tim, I feel like it's fair to say Wyden has been up and down over the years. They've had years of, you know, creating things like Old Spices Man Your Man Could Smell Like and their severe highs. And then also some years they just seem to kind of be off the radar creatively. This was definitely an on year for them. And in, in a way that uh, was more business oriented. I mean, at the international stage, they seem to really be uh, winning everything you'd want to win uh, with Airbnb, Lyft. Uh, they're doing stellar work for Instagram. They won Soylent. They won Shiseido. I mean, these are these are enviable accounts. But I feel like this was definitely a a killer year for Wyden. It was a great year for Wyden and Kennedy. Um, you know, they would tell you if you spoke to them about their finances, they would say one reason that we're independent is that we don't need to worry so much about our financial performance as other agencies do, as the holding companies uh, networks do. And so when they're, um, you know, even they've had down years in revenue here and there, but you know, it's it's usually when they're um, reshuffling uh, to, to, you know, for the future. And that's kind of what they did lately. I mean, one thing that we should point out up front about Widen and Kennedy is that they project their revenue to be flat this year, which is, uh, you know, not a number that you would consider um, your global agency of the year. But they, you know, they did win Airbnb, and all that revenue will not be uh, realized until next year. And they did have a tremendous uh, new business uh, performance this year. And you combine that with. Uh, some of the great creative work for their legacy clients like Nike and others. Uh, but, you know, really the hook of our story is that um, Wyden has kind of positioned itself as the agency for the new economy and the sharing economy, and these brands that they won this year kind of show that. Um, they did a tremendous campaign uh, out of their Amsterdam office for Instagram uh, that was really showed off um, stories, Instagram stories, which was the Snapchat killer app uh, that Instagram rolled out uh, recently. And that, that work was wonderful. It was, it was all, all the ads were made inside the Stories app, which is a great way to do it. And, you know, it was really great to see that work. Um, they rolled out a new campaign for Lyft. They, they won Lyft and, and rolled out new work for Lyft. Um, they ended up winning Airbnb, uh, which is 
creatively uh, a hugely coveted account and then and just one of those brands that everyone in the world wants to work on uh, you know Shayate has had it forever for several well for several years um, and then you know DDB uh, I think it was DDB and and Wyden um, were the finalists uh, for, for it this year and Wyden took it away and, and, and you know I think what Wyden is doing they also have internally they have that interesting uh, creative technology group called the Lodge which is doing quite interesting things for on accounts where you wouldn't necessarily love the creative work. So KFC, for example, they're doing a lot of interesting tech work for KFC. Uh, not many of us love the KFC campaign in terms of uh, the creative work, but but they're you know they're they're winning all these new economy clients. They're they're testing out new technologies and, and you know AI and things like that. And you know they're just positioning themselves for tomorrow and for an agency you know with with such a storied history going back to big budget TV work mostly uh, from the 80s and 90s. Uh, I think what Wyden did over the past year is remarkable, and I think they're they're a very deserving global agency of the year. Katie, what was your take on Wyden this year, sitting through the selection, looking at how they stacked up against some of their other players? Yeah, I was a big fan of Wyden. Um, the Instagram campaign, I think, was one of my favorites of the year. I just thought it was so different and creative, and as Tim said, like using the actual platform itself to to tell these stories and to create these ads, I thought was really, really smart. Um, I think also one of the things that we kind of focused on increasingly more this year was uh, the technology component and how agencies are positioning themselves to be competitive in this like new era of technology and digital um, or digital transformation, as we love to say all the time here. Um, but I think the work that they're doing at the Lodge is just super, super interesting and not necessarily different from what other agencies are doing, but I think they're doing it really, really well. Like that KFC VR um, escape the room experience was really kind of weird, but I think it was also really clever and kind of funny and interesting and different. Um, and I think it'll be cool to see, you know, what they do in the future coming out of the Lodge and how they think about technology uh, when it comes to the work they do for their clients. You know, so much uh, talk about about Widen is about Portland as well. And I think New York and Amsterdam had their best years ever in terms of growth this year. Uh, I think that's notable. And they're doing really interesting work in Asia as well. You know, Tokyo and, and, and Shanghai. Uh, these these emerging offices out there, also uh, Widen and Kennedy Delhi uh, in India is is an amazing uh, office, and so you know they're really uh, they they really do um, have an, a great argument to make that globally they're they're creatively very very strong. Even if you could point to one year, maybe they're a little better than another year, um, but they're between their new new business performance and their creative work this year, I thought they were um, a great choice. Like I said, uh, Katie and I, I believe both separately have been to Widen Amsterdam over the last year or two. Uh, and Katie, I don't know a little bit about you. I'm curious your thoughts. I really felt like this tremendous energy there that I have not felt at an agency in a long time. Just this, I don't know, it's a very hard thing to describe, but I really feel like that's come to fruition. The Instagram work came out of that office. Some really fantastic work has come out of it. They've hired the creative team uh, that was behind Dada Ding from the from the Delhi office, uh, and I'm sure that'll really manifest in, in some, some huge ways. But I don't know, did you have a similar experience? Yeah, I mean, I think their office in Amsterdam was one of my favorites. I've kind of gone to I think like to your point you can kind of sense the energy and the creativity even I mean you kind of expect if you go in an ad agency you're going to see like weird crazy kooky things um but theirs in particular like I left being like wow that was a really cool ad agency that I just went into yeah and not like cool for the sake of being cool yeah like, like, like it felt mm. right yeah. Well, let's uh, let's move on real quick. Uh, I want to make sure we have time for each of these. Our breakthrough agency of the year uh, this year is David, uh, which I always forget. Tim is their official name, David the Agency. I mean, this is they are they are drawn from David Ogilvy's name. They are part of the Ogilvy Network. What's their official name? Their official name is, I believe, just David. Uh, they say David the Agency because having a first name as your agency name is confusing. So they often, I think, they're even you when you email them, it's you know davidtheagency.com. Uh, but no, they're just called David. They are named after uh, David Ogilvy. They are affiliated with Ogilvy. And yeah, they had a, a really, really interesting year. That They're a fairly small agency. Um, uh, you know, my, David Miami is their, their U.S. office. They opened in 2011. Uh, they opened first in Buenos Aires in Sao Paulo. And uh, in 2014, they opened in uh, Miami. Uh, in 2017, they began the year with only 28 employees in Miami, and they won 26 Lions at Cannes. So that's a pretty remarkable ratio. Um, 
And, you know, Burger King is obviously their major client. They, in, in 2014, they were named um, Global Creative Lead on Burger King. And that same year, they did Proud Whopper. And they've done really great work for Burger King, you know, over the three years that they've they've been working on them. Um, this year, I think they reached a, a peak. Um, they won two Grand Prix at Cannes for, uh, for print, for the burning stores, and uh, in direct for the Google Home of the Whopper, which was that stunt where uh, a TV commercial... Um, you know, was intended to get people's Google Home devices at home talking, uh, whether the owners wanted them to or not, uh, which was kind of a crazy thing. They had the, uh, David also made the anti-bullying ad for Burger King this year that was really, really widely uh, praised. And they also handle um, the Heinz uh, condiments division. So they do ketchup, mustard, uh, barbecue sauce for Heinz. And they had a really interesting campaign this year, um, which was tied to Mad Men. So uh, I, I know some of you guys watch Mad Men. I, I, David, I don't think you've watched it. <laughs> don't don't give away my darkest secret. <laughs> I, don't, I don't like Mad Men. Um, but anyway, in season six, I think it was, which aired in 2013, uh, Don Draper pitches uh, a, a series of ads to the, the, his Heinz client. Uh, fictionally, we're in 1968 when he's doing this, and it's just called Pass the Heinz. And it's almost like this gut milk strategy of not showing the product. So it just shows French fries, with, with no ketchup anywhere. It's like a, a hamburger with no ketchup, and it just says pass the Heinz. So um, David's idea was that they should just recreate this campaign exactly as it appeared in the show and run it in real life. And so they convinced uh, Heinz to do this. Uh, on the Mad Men show, Heinz, Heinz client um, did not approve Don's idea. Uh, so, but you know, within fictionally, uh, 50 years later, Heinz decided to approve it and they ran in print, uh, they ran, uh, outdoors in New York, New York city, a very, very modest media buy, um, but an enormous PR success and uh, very cool campaign. So between their Burger King stuff and their Heinz stuff, um, you know, this, this relatively small agency had an enormous, uh, creative year. And so we, we thought it would be good to honor them with breakthrough agency of the year this year. Yeah. I feel like the big difference between last year, Ogilvy was our global network of the year, largely thanks to work from David, uh, and also, uh, Ingo, uh, one of their agencies. Um, but, uh, you know, this year it felt like they were more than just Burger King's agency, you know, that they are really starting to come into their own. I think that's what, to me, put them over the top. But as you mentioned, man, they were just a juggernaut, uh, on the award show scene and they just created work that people want to talk about at a time that's 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 not easy that connect whopper getting your google home or whatever to talk about talk about your whopper that's a that's a hell of a hell of a stunt you'd be happy if that's all you came up with much less the burning stores and the bullying junior and everything else yeah i mean they still have you know very few clients i think they only have four or five clients altogether uh, in Miami, um, but they call those, as you say, they do these one-offs. Uh, they call them David specials internally. So, uh, and they claim to be growing through referral business. You know, like you know, Budweiser just added them to their roster a few weeks ago, and apparently Budweiser called up and said they wanted a David special. Um, you know, and I spoke to I spoke to Fernando Machado, who's the uh, global brand marketing chief over at Burger King, and you know, I said, you know, are these David specials really sustainable? Is it really uh, or are they just kind of stunts that, that maybe get you a lot of buzz in the short term? And he, you know, he says, um, he believes that they are sustainable because they're part of a, you know, a way of thinking, um, you know, it's almost like the old CPB model where you think in PR headlines and you, if, if you can pay it off with really interesting creative, that's not just clickbaity, uh, you know, that, that you can actually build brands that way. I think that's up for debate, but I think what David did this year, um, at the size they were, um, for the, for the attention that they were able to get for that brand in particular, um, it was remarkable. And last uh, but not least, our newest category, International Agency of the Year. As Tim mentioned, this is for an agency that is uh, maybe it's one office, maybe it's uh, you know within one nation. Uh, but this year, we want to kick it off with Okustum Holst, uh, which is an agency out of Sweden. Uh, you probably know them best if you follow advertising stuff as uh, the agency behind IKEA's Where Life Happens campaign. Uh, they, now, they are IKEA's domestic agency. Is that right, Tim? Obviously, IKEA yes. has a ton of agents. IKEA has a lot of agencies around the world, um, but uh, Okristam Holst uh, won the domestic IKEA business in Sweden in 2013, and they've spent the last four years kind of building that brand uh, within Sweden. I'll let uh, Tim talk about the Where Life Happens campaign in just a second, because that certainly was their magnum opus uh, for the year. But they also did some other really fascinating stuff. They won the Grand Prix, I believe, in Innovation Alliance. Am I right there, Tim? For, Correct. Yes. Uh, for a, a, they created a new element, basically, called Humanium, by melting down guns and then oxygen 
auctioning off the bars of humanium that are left to raise money for a client called I Am Swedish Development Partner, um, and which was just a fascinating idea and took a lot of work to make it happen. Uh, they also did one of my favorite little stunts where they did a logo switch with Audi, uh, where one of their skiers that they sponsored uh, was where wore a license plate number on the uh, in, in where the Audi logo would usually go. And if you were the first to catch that on Twitter, I believe, uh, you would, I think, win a car or something like that. But it really made people stare at the Audi logo. You know? <laughs> like <laughs> The first time anyone's ever cared that much about a sponsor logo on a skier's shoulder. Uh, really fascinating campaign. But tell us about Where Life Happens. I mean, that's, it's just a fantastic campaign. Yeah, Where Life Happens is really, um, you know, an interesting way to do advertising. You know, most advertising is really kind of idealizes uh, life. And, and, you know, as the viewer, you sort of aspire to, um, you know, this ideal life that you're, that you're watching. You know, what I did, what Ikea did, um, with Oakerstam Holst is, you know, really shine a light on, on families that, uh, are very ordinary and going through ordinary problems. And, um, you know, one of the best known where life happens ads, um, is about a, a, a divorced couple, uh, where the the son is now uh, their son is moving between the homes, and so the the, the father um, decides to decorate his son's bedroom to look exactly like the kid's room at his mom's house, and so you know not a lot of um, marketers would really would really show a, a family uh, of divorced parents like that. Um, another notable ad from this year uh, had a single mom who comes home and and her teenage kids are sort of making a mess of the house and she's really struggling and they end up making dinner for her. Um, you know, they're not these like huge stories, um, but they're really well done and they really kind of shine, on, shine a light on um, what, what people actually go through. Um, I think, I think, you know, I spoke to Magnus Jacobson, who's the, I think his title is ECD, but he's the de facto creative chief of the office. Uh, he was sort of a superstar copywriter over at DDB, and he joined uh, this agency in 2016. He's really injected a lot of life into it, and he's sort of the the driving force, I think, behind a lot of their approaches. And and the Where Life Happens approach for IKEA, you know, he told me uh, he doesn't think it's that revolutionary. Uh, he just thinks it's kind of um, it, it kind of rings true to to the people living in Sweden. Um, he said Sweden's not necessarily the most you know. Um, bright, happy place all the time. Like in the winter, you know, the sun barely shines. And he said, he said, we just decided to kind of lean into that and just t show real life kind of as it happens. And, you know, it's really had an impact. You know, the, I spoke to the IKEA client there too, who said that they're getting all sorts of uh, amazing uh, engagement with the brand that they haven't seen for a few years. And, you know, the agency itself is growing as a result. I think they were, the revenue was up about 10 to 12% over the past two years combined. And, uh, you know, they're, they're growing. They're still small. They're smaller than David even there. I think there are 68 employees there. Um, over at David, I think you've got about 140 across three offices. So pretty small agency, um, but, but definitely doing top-notch creative work. Uh, and they're also doing uh, in interesting things in, in the workplace. The CEO, uh, Petronella Paneras, uh, who I also spoke to for the story, um, she is very, very much a pioneer in, in office culture in promoting diversity and equality in the workforce. Um, there's an award in Sweden called the Golden Wave, uh, which goes every year to the Swedish agency that's done the most to promote diversity and equality internally. Uh, Okerstam Holst has won that award uh, the past two years. So they won it this year. They won it last year. Um, their senior management team, including um, Petronella, is 55% women. Uh, their, their account executive team is 63% women. 48% um, of creatives there are women, which may be even more notable. Uh, and then 57% of new recruits this year were women. And then they also have a diverse workforce, too, in, in other ways. Um, I think 15% of employees uh, can trace their ancestry outside of the Nordic countries, which is not always that common up there. So, you know, you know, we, we decided to honor them with this award because we really thought that their creative work was really fascinating between the human, Humanium that you mentioned and also particularly the IKEA stuff and also their efforts just to kind of move advertising along uh, and have it reflect you know, the viewership of the ads that you make, you know, that was Petronella's point is that you can't make um, great ads if the people working on them don't really look like the people who are, who are watching them. So um, I thought it was an interesting choice. Uh, it came down to a handful of agencies around the world. And, you know, we were pretty thrilled to be able to recognize this relatively unknown agency with this, um, this first ever award of ours. Now, I will uh, end the conversation on a <laughs> posing the question to Katie and Lindsay that I get the most after we announce our agency of the year, which is what can I do to make my agency the agency of the year? Um, you know, and the ones who maybe were closer who want to be a top contender, 
What do you guys think agencies can do to get this honor in 2018? Um, think outside of the box. Um, definitely focus on diversity. Um, definitely go for the the clients that, you know, Silicon Valley, these coveted clients, um, I guess if you can. Um, I, yeah, I don't know. Just Just think outside of the box. Yeah, I feel like that's a really hard question to answer. <laughs> yeah, yeah um, right? <laughs> that's, uh, yeah, I'm sorry you have to answer that question all the time. Yeah, I guess to, to my point earlier, I think more and more, I mean, obviously the creative work is a huge part of, you know, what we discuss when we're deliberating as well as growth um, and strategic moves. But I think more and more like the digital and the technology side of things and how you're integrating that into your work is going to be even more important in the future. And I think that's just something to keep in mind um, for agencies, like, you know, build out your digital department. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I feel like uh, product development and kind of reinventing the agency model were two of the big recurring themes and also diversity and, and how they were flattening their leadership structure. But, you know, those were the recurring themes in 2017. So let's see where we are a year from now and kind of how the industry changes. Uh, it's been so great having all of you on to, for this discussion this weekend. Thank you to each of you for you know committing quite a few hours into the selection process of Agency of the Year. You were all very uh, vital to picking these. So thank you. Don't forget, you can email your questions, your comments, uh, your thoughts on who should have been Agency of the Year to podcast at adweek.com. That's podcast at adweek.com. Our theme music is by Home. This episode was produced by Christina Monlos. Please take a moment, if you've not already, to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, uh, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Those reviews mean a lot to us personally, and they also help new listeners discover the show. I'm David Greiner with Adweek, and we will be back next week. 